0: Hello and welcome to gamer to gamer I'm your host, James Intercasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games that they love to play. Today's guest is Keith Baker. Keith is the creator of the Eberron Campaign Setting, the Gloom card game, a novelist, and a game designer. Please use the affiliate links on the thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Hey everybody, I am here with the one and only Keith Baker, the creator of the Eberron campaign setting. He is a novelist, he is a game designer, he's a world builder and a storyteller. Keith, thank you very much for being with us here today.
1: I am glad to be here.
0: All right, well, take us all the way back. We're definitely going to get to Eberron, and we're going to get to what you're doing now. But first, take us all the way back. When did you first lay hands on a tabletop RPG? What did you play, and were you the dungeon master? Were you the player?
1: When I was about eight or nine, I acquired first the white box uh, of D&D, and then the AD&D Monster Manual, DM's Guide, Player's Handbook. Uh, I certainly read them all a while before I actually played any of them. Uh, at the time, there was nothing else out there. And just things like the Monster Manual and Deities and Demigods, as someone who liked uh, mythology, well, here's this book that actually like gave you stats so you could see if like, Zeus and Thor got into a fight, who would win. And so for a while, as I said, I just sort of read them. I loved Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. And, you know, here's this book that's, that's all about, you know, tell your own stories. Then I definitely got my friend's plane. So I was the DM, I would say, 80, 90% of the time. Pretty much tried anything that came out. So, you know, we went to Gamma World and Stormbringer and Call of Cthulhu, uh, the Mechanoids of all things, (laughs) uh, a system called Element Masters. I actually played for quite a fair bit, um, and I have no idea if anyone out there has ever heard of Element Masters.
0: No.
1: Um, As things went on, I settled actually primarily in late high school on uh, the hero system, uh, both champions and fantasy hero, and I just liked the flexibility uh that provided. But basically, yeah, from that point on I just uh kept running stuff and every now and then I would end up as a player, but most of the time I was the game master.
0: So, why don't you tell me a little bit about how your career began within the gaming industry?
1: Well, I have I'm one of those rare people who knew exactly what I wanted to do and ended up doing it. <laughs> uh again, I started role playing back in junior high or late elementary school, and by the time I was towards the end of high school, you know, my thing is, someone's writing these books. You know, this is a job someone has. Uh, I want to have that job. And, of course, I didn't know how to do it. Back then, there certainly wasn't any, like, ooh, game design, you know, programs in schools or anything like that. Uh, So I ended up getting a degree in English and creative writing, uh, as well as doing a certain amount of history. And gone out of college and, again, still didn't know, well, you know, how do I get that job? And I ended up, through a sort of fluke, getting a job in the computer game industry. And I actually ended up working for eight years on computer games, mostly MMOs. And, in fact, the first job I had, I ended up working with a lot of old TSR folks. Uh, So um, Zeb Cook I worked with closely, who did you know, Planescape, Oriental Adventures. Lawrence Schick, who did White Plume Mountain and was one of the guys at TSR. Ken Ralston, uh, who's done quite a lot of things. Anyhow, so I got to know uh, sort of people in the industry. While I was uh, working, I was also sort of getting more contacts. And I ended up, I think, probably three or four years after getting out of college, I... um, did some freelance work for Atlas Games for the role-playing game Over the Edge. And they expanded into D20 with the OGL. And so I did a bunch of just little freelance pieces for them. Uh, I did some work for Goodman Games, some work for Green Ronin, uh, you know, sort of just wherever I could find an open call. Meanwhile, I was getting very frustrated with my computer work because none of the games I worked on were getting published, and that was very frustrating uh so I finally decided you know I've been doing this freelance stuff for a long time you know let's see what happens if I just try to do it full time you know let's let's see can i can I do more than just the odds and ends I've been doing uh so I quit my job nice, and that was you know, a month or two later, Wizards announced the Fantasy Setting Search, which ended up producing Everon. <laughs> so that worked out remarkably well for me. And so basically end of that year, you know, they picked up Eberron. Uh From that point forward, I pretty much, you know, had all the, the role-playing work I, uh, I could fill my time with. That was also the same year that I created Gloom, uh, my transparent card game. And between those two things, I've mainly you know, been able to then continue as a full-time game designer from that point forward. Occasionally, I've gone back and uh, worked a day job in computer gaming, because um, it certainly does bring in better money. Um, but mainly, I've just uh, been freelance since around 2003.
0: So I hope everybody out there hears that this man had a dream of doing this, worked at it for years, and then finally took the leap.
1: Absolutely. And I will say that actually, in some ways, I'm more proud of Gloom than I am of Eberron, simply because Eberron was a bit of a fluke because Wizards did the fantasy setting search. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't say with any certainty, oh, that would have happened, you know, in any case, whereas Gloom is something... That I made in my basement, figured out a way to prototype it, found a company that wanted to produce it, and it's been you know doing better every year for ten years. So that's certainly a a story of you can make a thing in your basement and get it out there.
0: Can you talk to people a little bit about what Gloom is? You know, expand on that process a little bit. How you got it made?
1: So Gloom is a, a non collectible card game. It uses transparent plastic cards where basically you have characters and as the game progresses, you tell a story by laying cards on top of your characters. Uh, It's called Gloom because you want to tell an especially miserable story about how your family suffers and dies. It's essentially the My Family Had It Worse Than Your Family game. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was in a shop somewhere and I saw a deck of transparent playing cards And just thought, wait a second, you can print on transparent plastic, you know, A, cool, and B, (laughs) but it's kind of pointless on a poker deck. You know, so I want to make a game that actually uses this in a meaningful manner. And so what I ended up doing was actually printing it on overhead projector film Mm. um, just so I could, you know, actually prototype it and make sure the premise worked. Um, And the main thing is I actually sent it to Atlas Games, um, who I talked to. Basically, I got to know Atlas Games by just going up at Gen Con and saying, hey, I want to make stuff. You know, do you, are you people who um, accept outside, you know, submissions and such? So that's one thing I would say to anybody. Go to a convention like, um, you know, any of the major conventions. Certainly Gamma is a good one for it. Um, and talk to you know talk to people at the different companies you know find out what their policies are introduce yourself. Um, anyhow, I knew that Atlas from previous conversations was interested in card games. I didn't know if they could produce this game because you know the transparent plastic thing was sort of wacky. But I put together the prototype, sent it to them, and they figured out uh, you know they found a printer who could do it, um, and it went from there.
0: It did, and now there's a Cthulhu version of Gloom, is that correct?
1: There is a Cthulhu version of Gloom. We just came out with a second edition of Gloom, which has a bunch of improvements, because it's been out for 10 years. And uh, early next year, or at least at some point next year, we're coming out both with fairy Tale Gloom and potentially Munchkin Gloom, <laughs> uh, which is the chance to tell your most miserable uh, role-playing stories.
0: That sounds like a lot of fun, and I bet a lot of listeners out there would be interested in that as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about the fantasy setting search? Uh, mm-hmm. I know this was big news. It was highly competitive. But for people out there who don't know, what was it, and how was the process for you?
1: 2003, I believe it was. Um might have been 2002, one of those. Anyhow, whenever it was, I had been working in computer games for about eight years, and I'd worked on two projects for three years apiece of that, Uh, and basically things kept getting canceled in beta. So it's March, this game I've been working on for three years that is an awesome game, it's very clear that for various stupid reasons it's going to get canceled, and I was just sick of the whole thing, and so I quit. Uh, Then, I think it was in June, Wizards of the Coast makes an announcement that they're looking for a new setting for 3rd edition, and that they're going to do an open call, and that basically anybody can send in, and a big point of this is it was anybody, including their employees. This was not sort of American Idol, we're going to find a complete unknown, it was simply, we want the best idea. And uh, anybody could send them a one-page description of a world. And that one page had a very specific format. You know, you needed to say, sort of, describe the world in one to two sentences. You needed to say, well, what's new about it? Uh, You know, how's magic fit into the world? Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? Um, And you definitely had to limit it to one page. I think they were expecting just to get, you know, 400 submissions or something like that. (laughs) You know, again, open calls happen in the gaming industry. And instead they got 12,000. So that uh, came as a surprise to them. (laughs) And so they waited through them. Apparently, I believe 1,000 got thrown out for basically not following the rules. So they went through 11,000 entries, And they narrowed it down to 11. Wow. And then each of those 11 people had to then turn their one-page idea into a 10-page idea. Mm. So we did that. Uh, Then they picked three of those people. And uh, those people, first off, at that point, they bought the rights to the settings. So all three of those people got paid $20,000 and um you then had to for that $20,000 write a 100 page setting bible mm. and they finally picked uh Eberon out of that and uh which got me an extra $100,000 so again <laughs> it was a good year for me uh it was unexpected to to make more money doing role-playing than I had in the computer business.
0: Right. <laughs> wow, that sounds pretty incredible that you were able to, uh, to to do all that against all that competition. And of course, now we have Eberron, which is the greatest campaign setting of all time. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's objective. I don't know if you know that it is objectively the best to ever. I'll...
1: I've always suspected, but you never
0: know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh could you talk a little bit about what inspired your different ideas for Eberron and did you have the whole thing fleshed out in your head when you were writing that one sheet or at each Not stage at all. did you Oh,
1: okay. Cool. Not even a little. So basically that's the thing to me is is a lot of people have sort of said oh how could you how could you sell your world you know and and give up control and part of the point was well this wasn't like Forgotten Realms where you know I'd been building this world for twenty years uh, it was in fact I submitted seven ideas to the fantasy setting search and it was the seventh it was basically as I said I'd been working on a. Um, For three years on a computer game and that computer game was a pulp MMO So it was sort of Indiana Jones the mummy and as a result of that. i had been watching a lot of pulp serials uh, over the course of the previous three years and I've always been a fan of film noir Uh, I've also always been a fan of basically if magic exists, trying to extrapolate how would it affect society. You know, magic shouldn't be a thing that just remains static. There's no particular reason that, you know, if there's wizards, they should just be just a handful of them alone in their ivory towers, Uh, at least following the the way that magic works in D&D. And so Eberron just was these three things sort of brought together. It was just sort of on a whim, okay, what if we made a sort of pulpy you know, um Pulp and Film Noir sort of took those inspirations, worked them into d and d, and then added an element of essentially, if we had magic as it works in basic d and d rules in the Renaissance instead of science, what would the world look like three or four hundred years later? And those were just the sort of you know two concepts that drove the one pager of just this sort of multi... You know, the, the one-sentence description was Lord of the Rings meets Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Maltese Falcon. So that was just the core idea. And, you know, again, for one page, you didn't need very much. When they actually said, we want more of this, that was a sort of, oh, wow, really? Um, okay, now I need to think about it. And so as it went from the 1 to the 10 to the 100, I certainly drew in things from other campaigns I'd run. You know, while it's not uh, something where i have been working on it for 20 years, there's certainly pieces of it that it's like, oh, that one comes from the game I ran 20 years ago, if you see what I'm saying. Beyond that, certainly a couple of the key things were the idea of, of considering magic as a science. And also two of the ideas were largely just trying to do things in a different way than most of the other established settings had. So one of the the key things there was saying the players should be the main heroes of the world. This is not a world, you know, where we have Gandalf, where we have Elminster. You know, this is a world in which, if this is a novel, your characters should be the main characters in the novel. So that is a thing about Eberron some people call out, is the most powerful NPCs, uh, first off, there's not a lot of them, and even the ones there are, are fairly limited. So you have, like, the two most powerful spellcasters that are friendly in the world are the Great Druid, who's a tree, so he can't really do very much, uh, and Jayla Darren, who's an eight-year-old girl and loses most of her power if she leaves her temple. (laughs) And so part of the idea was saying this is a world in which if the Tarask attacks Sharn, you need to do something about it. There are no, you know, army of 20th level heroes who are going to show up and fix the problem if you don't. The other thing that was significantly different about it was the idea of having distant gods, uh, of saying that this is a world in which we don't actually concretely know that deities exist, Um, which is very different from, you know, let's say, especially Forgotten Realms, where divine intervention is a very fundamental part.
0: Yeah, they're walking Uh, around on the ground down there. Exactly.
1: And with Eberron, it's not that I necessarily dislike what you can do with that kind of thing. But with Eberron, I wanted to do something different where you could have religious schisms, where you could have heresies, where you could have something like the lycanthropic purge, which people can look back on and say, oh, what were we thinking? You know, whereas a lot of those things, which are very real for us, don't make any sense in a world where you ought to just be able to ask the God, which of us is right about this? Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's sort of part of the thing that helps make Eberron essentially be able to tell stories that resonate more with our world.
0: It's very close to the real world. You also feel, you know, those the influence of the last war and I think we still reel from war today in our own world that was fought, you know, many, many years ago, centuries ago even in some cases.
1: Absolutely, and the point of the last war, the last war calls somewhat on both World War One and World War Two, where it had the same sort of impact in a way that World War I did on society. You know, this sort of shock and malaise uh the morning obviously is somewhat equivalent to the end of world war ii with this thing that completely changes the balance of power Mm -hmm. and sort of throws the world into you know essentially poses an existential threat but we're not even sure you know is this something we can control do we dare go to war when we know that this power is out there um I will also just throw in one other thing, of course, with the Dragon Marked Houses is also introducing the theme of corporate power uh, and the sort of cyberpunkish flavor of the question of are these guilds essentially becoming more powerful than nations? Mm-hmm. And so that's another sort of theme that resonates with people in our world.
0: I have to say one of my favorite things about Eberron is that as you go through the campaign guide, there are all these little mysteries that Mm -hmm. you leave unsolved Mm -hmm. so that any Eberron game could be completely, what caused the morning in my game could be completely different than Mm -hmm. what caused the morning in a game one table over. When you were writing the campaign guide, was that your idea to drop in all these little mysteries?
1: Well, it was actually something that I sort of picked up from working on Over the Edge, which uh, was designed by Jonathan Tweet. Uh, And Over the Edge is a conspiracy-driven game. It's sort of X-Files, Twilight Zone, Illuminati. And it's something he does there of, rather than just giving all the answers, giving some options. And for me, it's about, with Eberron, What I want a campaign setting to be is something that inspires you in creating your own stories, not something that limits you or prevents you from making a story you want. Uh, So the point with the morning, as you said specifically, is what caused the morning, this terrible, terrible disaster that has completely changed the balance of power of the world. I could give you half a dozen answers right now. But the point is we don't give you a single answer because we want you to be able to say, A, we're never gonna know. It's not actually relevant to the story I want to tell. Or to tie it into your specific villain, your specific thing, you know, to give you room to sort of make the world your own. And it has exactly the effect you described of, I'm actually playing in an Eberron campaign. And the point is, you know, when I play in an Eberron campaign, I don't know the answers, even though I made the world. Mm -hmm. And I like that degree of mystery of there's still something for me to discover.
0: (laughs) You know, I never really thought about that, but that's true. You're playing in the world you created, and there's things even you don't know, which is pretty awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's, I think, it is one of the things that, again, differentiates Eberron from, let's say, Forgotten Realms of a very different approach to canon. And, you know, one of the things that is also sort of part of Eberron is that the novels, and there's like 36 novels for Eberron, are not actually canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they are all things that could happen in Eberron. And this in part comes back to what I said earlier. We want your characters to be the heroes. So uh, in the first series of novels I wrote, one of the things that happens is they go to Zendric and they acquire this amazing artifact. Uh, when I wrote Secrets of Zendrick, I did provide stats for that artifact, but I didn't mention my characters because, again, what I wanted is the opportunity for you to find it. You know, if this is Middle Earth, you're going to be the people who end up having to destroy the ring. And that's a very different approach from something like Dragonlance or Forgotten Realms, where the novels build this immense sort of uh, bulk of canon. And on the one hand, that has advantages. You know, it adds all this depth and gives people all these things to mind. On the other hand, the goal of Eberron is, as I said, to leave more room for you to just and encourage you to, to change what you want and to really make it your own world.
0: Yeah. And that, so that brings me to another point about Eberron, which is one of the things that was great was when the transition from 3.5 to 4 happened and a lot of settings, Dark Sun, Forgotten Realms were being updated. You know, where were Mm -hmm. they now in their storyline and that sort of thing? Eberron. Stayed where it was, which I thought was really great, because mm-hmm. then you just needed to buy the book, you know skim over it to see like oh here 's how some mechanics have changed, and there was actually more story information yep. in that guide um, yeah we
1: did we did add in you know that was the point of instead of moving it along or dramatically changing it, it was more an opportunity to go into a little more depth about basic themes that hadn 't come out as clearly uh, the first time around. Um, And we talked about advancing the timeline, but decided we didn't want to do it. I mean, it always comes into that thing of if you change the world significantly, do you destroy what people like about it? Do you know what people like about it? And of course, you know you're going to be invalidating whatever they've done in their campaigns. Mm -hmm. Whereas by sticking with the same timeline and just sort of adding more depth, it meant that you could continue a story you've been doing in 3.5 just you know extrapolate uh, from what you know what is in the 4e book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see uh you know books that go back in the timeline and and allow you to play in the different ages and you know during the Decan Empire.
1: That is something I just mentioned on Twitter that is certainly a thing I would like to do. That is what I'm much more my basic feeling is I think a new Eberron sourcebook needs to focus initially on the last war, you know, the, the 998, the, the post-war thing, you know, to make sure that people can run games in that period. Um, But I would love, I've always wanted to do a sourcebook or sourcebooks about other time periods. Dakkan is, you know, the big ones to me would be Dakkan, something more focused on running a game during the last war. Uh, or even as a more sort of adventure path um, rather than a full campaign setting, uh, the Lycanthropic Purge is something that I think is an interesting period to explore.
0: Uh-huh. who who do I have to pay to make this happen? What? Uh, how do we make Fifth Edition Eberron a thing? Who do we write to? What's the best way we can support you in this?
1: Basically, it's just a thing to to mention, you know, anytime you're on a Wizards of the Coast board or you're uh, in any kind of conversation with um, the people at Wizards, just indicating it's something you'd like to see. Um, It is something, I mean, I'm talking with Wizards about it. You know, they definitely want to do something. It's just a question of when and what form it takes and so the main thing is just the more that they hear there are people out there who do want it, the more it's going to sort of push it up the uh, the slush pile, as it were. Um, so, like I said, you know, hey, find Mike Marles on Twitter and say, Mike forever Aberon, you know.
0: <laughs> All right, um, everybody, flood his Twitter feed. Let's <laughs> do it,
1: but in a friendly way. You yes. know, as I said, the main point is that Wizards is not actively resistant to the idea. It's just a matter of when it gets to the you know, works its way up the, the food chain.
0: So let me ask you a few questions about the game that you are playing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you're playing in an Eberron game. Are you running or playing any other games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons or otherwise?
1: So for the last year, I have been working on a new role-playing game, uh, which is called Phoenix Dawn Command. Um, That is actually a card-based role-playing game. So it uses cards instead of dice uh, and, in fact, instead of character sheets. Sort of everything you need to know about your character's capabilities uh, are handled with a deck of cards. It is non-collectible. It's not something (laughs) weird or sneaky like that. And it is also a very story-driven game. You know, it definitely works in a lot of narrative Uh, Focus on the part of the players.
0: Oh, that sounds interesting. So how does that work? You have one card that represents your character, and then there is other card gear and uh... so
1: it's actually uh, First off it is very much a role-playing game So if you compare it to something like the Pathfinder adventure card game, it's not like that at all there is a game master Uh, You know who drives the story and each player has their own actual deck of cards You essentially have a set of cards that stay out in front of you and those represent your sort of ongoing abilities Um, And then you have a deck of cards that represents your you could almost say your feats your Traits is actually what they're you know referred to things that sort of only come up occasionally along with your basic capabilities, your you know your uh, stats and skill, as it were. And so instead of rolling a die, when you want to try and do something, you describe what you want to, uh, to do, and then you're going to lay out a certain number of cards from your hand uh, to try to accomplish it. Now, what drives the game? In the game, you are basically in a fantasy setting it's a relatively low magic fantasy setting uh in which a relatively peaceful uh world has suddenly just been torn apart by a vast array of supernatural threats and we don't really know where these are coming from we don't know how they are they relate to one another we just know okay we've just lost three cities to zombie you know uh infestations. We've got a skeletal army marching up the coast. We've got werewolves in the woods. We've got mass hauntings and hysteria. You know, sort of every bad thing you can think of, there's a chance it's going on somewhere. and We don't know why. Uh, And most of these threats, normal people simply can't handle. You are what are called phoenixes. And phoenixes are people who have died and returned to life imbued with supernatural power. And what makes a phoenix is the fact that when you die, you will come back stronger than before. But you can only come back seven times. Uh, so death is actually the character advancement mechanism within the game. Huh. And so it is basically something where in drawing a little, it's sort of a blend of fantasy and certain elements of survival horror. Uh, where part of the point is you are often being sent into situations where you don't have a lot of information about the nature of the threat uh, and where you may simply flat out not be up to the task. You know, So uh, an example I'd like to give is Mariah in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. where you could basically say, we're going to send you to this place. We know something is going on in these mines and we don't know what. Go check it out. You go check it out. You run into a bunch of orcs. Okay. We can handle orcs. You go deeper and you run into ooh, a troll, and the troll's pretty badass. And hopefully you can beat it, but you might even lose someone if uh, if luck goes against you. Then you run into a Balrog, and the point there is you can't beat it. This is not a fight you can actually stand up and win. It is now a question of can you actually manage to get at least someone out alive uh, and get this information back to um you know to the Grand Area, basically. Uh, That's still a victory because you found out what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that, again, victory is not always you kill everything, you get all the treasure. You know, it is basically accomplishing your objectives, whether or not you live or die in the process. And this ties to, again, like another thing might be uh, you're dropped into a village where there's a zombie outbreak. And can you stop it from spreading? And the basic point is, if you can stop it, you know, end that outbreak, then it doesn't matter if you all die in the process, you will come back. But if you all die before you've actually managed to contain it, you don't come back right away, you don't come back where you died, and basically by the time you come back, it's going to be too late. We'll have lost that village, it'll have spread too far, drastic measures will have to be taken. So the two things that are particularly interesting from a storytelling perspective is that failure is a possibility. You know, the story doesn't have to essentially be balanced so that you're most likely going to win. Uh, And there's certainly degrees of success, you know, absolute success, terrible failure, or, well, we managed to do this, but we suffered these losses. And on top of that, sacrifice is something that can be part of a story going back to the balrog someone can make the decision i will hold this bridge the rest of you get out i'm gonna die but you know i'll cover your escape or i'll accomplish this particular thing it's you know just a sort of thing that you can't really do Mm -hmm. in a traditional game. So that winds all the way back around to using cards. You are basically using cards, and you also have a pool of magical energy, which among other things can enhance uh, your actions, essentially adding to your die rolls. And so rather than rolling a die, which is essentially a random, I don't know what's going to happen, uh, in Phoenix, I do know What's going to happen? You know, I can look at the thing and most of the time look at my hand and say, well, I'm going to need a 30 to pull this off and I'm playing that 30, even Mm -hmm. if it costs me this or if I need your help or things like that. It's just that question of, you know, am I willing to spend what it takes? You know, is that a sacrifice I can make to accomplish this goal?
0: Wow, that sounds really, really cool. Uh, I would love to play that. So when are people going to have a chance to check that out and be able to play it?
1: So first off, uh, I'm posting on my website, which is Keith-Baker.com.
0: Cool. It'll uh, be in our show notes for this episode as well.
1: And there, either there or at a, uh, my company, Together Studios, We're going to, you know, we have a sign up right now that you can get on the Tell Me News about Phoenix, just so you can uh, find out more. We are going to be kickstarting it in on February tenth, and um, coming out then later in that year. It is a game that, again, we've been playtesting and developing for over a year now, and so the the Kickstarter isn't really about funding development. It's we're in the final stages uh and we just need to to take it through to production. Um so like I said, I'm I'm quite confident it will be out uh you know in uh later in twenty fifteen.
0: So you're you're playing that and it sounds like you're probably bumping all around. Are you often a game master or a player?
1: So I've been playing a lot of Phoenix over the last year. I've run something like sixty-five uh, games of Phoenix uh, in the last year, uh, going to conventions, traveling around, doing charity events, uh, and the occasional D&D game um, in and around there. I also have, of course, been playing some Phoenix. Uh, my co-designer, Dan Garrison, uh, is, has been running games for me. Uh, and as I said, I've been playing 5th edition uh, Eberron with a group of friends.
0: That's excellent. And what is your character in that Eberron game?
1: Uh, It went through a couple different uh, versions. Initially, I was playing a changeling rogue, and that was fine, but I decided I wanted a different direction. Uh, And so now I am playing a half-orc paladin uh, who comes from the demon wastes. And that's actually been a great opportunity for me to dig a little deeper into the culture of the demon wastes and to sort of present a very different perspective on the silver Flame.
0: I guess uh, it must be very helpful for the DM to be able to turn to you whenever there's a question about the world history or anything.
1: Well, I will say that in back in the day, the RPGA was running an Eberron uh, campaign called the Mark of Heroes, and I played in a friend's Mark of Heroes campaign, and basically the DM would use me... Another player was a bard and he would basically use me as the, the bardic knowledge. <laughs> so if the bard ever wanted to know something, you know, he'd roll his dice and the game master would say, so, you know, Hey, what's the Takani empire? I got a 20. And the game master would say, Keith. <laughs> and you know, so it's a little like being the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. You know, I would jump in and, and provide.
0: <laughs> oh, that sounds super fun. <laughs> uh, so if people are, hankering for some stats because they want to convert their eberron game uh looks like you have some posts on your website keith-baker.com uh do you think you're going to be posting more conversion stuff up there
1: it's uh hard to say I've, i've posted some sort of basic ideas on the warforged and artificers and part of it it's just this sort of wacky legal gray area since, uh, you know, I'm not allowed to actually make new Eberron material. Mm-hmm. So for the past couple years, what I've been doing is putting up question and answers on the website because I can answer questions. Right. Um, it's a little, as I said, more of a gray area of could I just post stats for an artificer? Right. You right. know, and... It's certainly something I'd like to do as I have time. I'm hoping that there will get, you know, a clearance will happen so it can actually be done officially. Um, But at the very least, I do continue to do question and answers and uh, people can certainly contact me through the website and people do with their specific questions or things they're trying to work on.
0: Gotcha. And so if people want to contact you, they can contact you through the website. How else can they hit you up?
1: Uh, so I'm, uh, Hell Keith at Twitter. Um, so that's an easy way to get me and pretty much that and the website are the two, the two things to do. I mean, oh. I'm on Google plus and Facebook, but I don't use either of those as much.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And then I just have a few rapid fire Eberron questions for you, you to bring us out. So what is your favorite Eberron PC race?
1: Uh, the thing is I like all of them. And part of what I like about Eberron is putting a new spin on old things. Uh, So, I mean, obviously, I like the Warforged. I was a big fan of Blade Runner. um, And some of that sort of trickles through to the Warforged as a created race, also built for a war which is no longer being fought. What does that leave you as? You know, what are you? Um, At the same time, I'll say one of my favorite things in Eberron actually are the gnomes, just because I like having taken gnomes who are usually comic relief and actually made them scary badasses.
0: (laughs) I agree. I agree. Yeah, they are terrifying, actually, in Eberron. And actually, on that note, which dragon-marked house would you want to be on the right side of? Who wouldn't you want to double cross? Well,
1: I will say that I have the mark of making, actually, ah. uh, as a tattoo. So, you know, obviously <laughs> I've got some some uh, Keneath loyalty there. At the same time, you know, they are a house that's all broken up. So, I mean, I would have to say either Civis because you don't cross a gnome. Or of course, you know Thorrani because hey, assassins—two uh, <laughs> be houses I wouldn't want to mess with.
0: Which kinith branch would you want to uh, join?
1: I I would probably go south with uh, with Merricks. just they're the sort of easiest, you know, most easygoing of the bunch. Certainly stay away from from the the East Karnath branch, and I just feel like Jorlana and uh, the the Andarians are have have you know, wands stuck up their butts, is all
0: I'm saying. <laughs> well, and I think Merrick's. he's really, he's got the plan, you know. He's exactly. Smart, so. He's
1: smart, he's he's willing to, to bend the rules a little, seems like a good guy to, to work with.
0: <laughs> and uh, which of the five nations do you think uh, will win the next war when it comes about?
1: Oh, well, I think Redra is going to win the next war, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, but secret answer C. Um, interesting so uh, although the big thing I of course point out there is that if the inspired are driving the last war which they very well could be uh, they wouldn't do it by staging a reedron invasion of Corvair instead they would be secretly backing and subverting one of the existing nations and conquer that way (sighs) because that's what the inspired are all about is they want you to think that uh you want them to be in charge and they do that by you know subverting whoever you you believe your leaders are uh but if we just took the five nations as they stand it's certainly not gonna be siri because hey what siri uh (laughs) except they could harness the morning and then take over everything so you know the short answer is whoever figures out how the morning works Mm. most likely to win otherwise it also just comes to a you know, I don't really have a favorite among the five nations either, just because I think they're all interesting in their own way. You know, each one, if we were running some big campaign and you said, okay, Keith, you're, you know, it's it's the last war and you're in charge of Bondare, there's lots of cool things I could do with that. But on the other hand, if I was in charge of Breland, ooh, I'm going to be using the Citadel, I'm going to do all kinds of things. Carneth, I got my undead. You know, I mean, again, I really feel each one is very interesting in its own right.
0: Oh, I'm picturing a Risk-style board game, but with an uh, Eberron map on it, you know, and, and everybody has their own allies, and, oh, that could be a lot I of fun.
1: I would play that. Uh, <laughs> I also am waiting for a, a Lords of Sharn version of Lords of Waterdeep. Ooh! <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen before I get people's hopes up, but I, I've, I've often thought about making it myself, just because... I love Lords of Waterdeep as a game, but not being a huge FR guy, I don't really have any attachment to any of the characters or locations. And I'm like, oh, but if this was set in Sharn, that would be
0: awesome. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I would play that as well. So, well, Keith, thank you very much for coming on gamer to gamer today. I really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Glad to chat. Guys, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Keith Baker for being on the show. Also, many thanks. To to Jeff Greiner and everyone at The Tome Show. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Holidays are coming up guys, before you go to Amazon, go to thetomeshow.com, click on those links, shop as you normally would. And hey, if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Remember, never give up. Life is a game, eventually you gotta roll a 20.